Hi guys, I'm Steve Simpson. I am your host for the day. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Kansas. I am the chair of CHEST's COVID-19 task force and I'm the president-elect of CHEST. So it's really fun to be here with everyone today and we have an outstanding panel to talk about acute and long-term neurological implications of COVID-19. Uh, my co-host is uh, Dr. Deepa Gotur. Our panelists are Neha Dangayach, Carla Sivan, and Ashish Khanna. And they're each going to introduce themselves. And I guess Deepa, we'll start with you. Hi guys, my name is uh, Dr. Gotur, Deepa Gotur. I'm a newly minted associate professor uh, of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell. I practice at Houston Methodist Hospital. Um, and hello to you all. Thank you. Neha, will you take it next? Sure. Uh, I'm surprised, Steve, that you got my last name absolutely right. Uh, I'm Neha Dangayach. I'm an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery for the Mount Sinai Health System. And I'm the systems director for neuroemergencies management and transfers. Excited to be here. Thanks. Carla, over to you. Yes, hi everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm Carla Steven. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. And I run the ICU recovery clinic here. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to talk about some of the long-term implications of COVID-19 as well as other critical illnesses. Fantastic. And Ashish, please introduce yourself. Uh, hello everyone. Uh, Ashish Khanna. I'm uh, Associate Professor uh, of Anesthesiology with the Section on Critical Care Medicine and Section Head for Research here at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, and then uh, this is my first time uh, working with the CHEST group. I'm uh, excited to be a part of this and uh, hopefully today is going to be a good, strong conversation, lots of discussion, lots of interesting points. Thank you. Thanks, Ashish, and we're excited to have you here too. Actually, we're excited to have all of you here. This is a fantastic group. Um, so Ashish, I think first we're gonna to turn to you, and I think you have a few slides to show us and to talk about sedation and the challenges we have uh, with that in the intensive care unit. Sure. So take it away. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Steve. Um, so really a part of the short and long-term neurological outcome challenge is also what we do to our patients with COVID-19 in the ICU. And remember, you're also talking to an uh, anesthesia critical care person here. So a lot of what I say will be um, sort of determined by my anesthesia brain that has trained me to do things a certain way. Um, and I round a lot of time with uh, non-anesthesia critical care people, and there is often times where I'm telling them things and they're telling me things the other way. So, um, so, so, so all said and done, I still feel that there's a lot that goes on in terms of sedation for our patients with COVID-19. A lot of things that I've seen being done the right way and a lot of things that I question myself all the time. And hopefully I'll bring up some of my, uh, those points for discussion as, as I go on with my slides. Next slide, please. So um, this is what I tell my trainees in general when I round, and not just with COVID-19 patients. When you round in the ICU and, and you talk about your patient, talk about sedation. Talk about what you're giving your patient. Is it just propofol, propofol and Versed, propofol fentanyl? Is it uh, our favorite uh, delirium drug, Presidex? How are we doing it? What combinations are we giving? What doses have we been giving? How many days have been, we been on those drugs? I feel that those discussions are often forgotten and sort of not given their due importance. We often present ourselves in rounds saying, oh, my patient's on, um, on fentanyl drip and on propofol and we move on to the next point. That is critical. And that is critical when three days later you wake up your patient, no one's waking up, and then you're running around trying to get a neuroconsult, trying to get EEGs on your patient, a CT head, a lot of wasted resources at that point. If we do a better job with really being particular about how we sedate our patients and with drug pharmacology and physiology, we'll probably have a better outcome when we wake up our patient. The other thing, uh, is COVID-19 patients. 
often the tendency is to just slam them with sedation and leave them there. Understand that patient A with COVID-19 is not the same as patient B with COVID-19. Critical care, as we all know, is not a one-size-fits-all. But with COVID-19, it is especially true that it's not one-size-fits-all. So, so please be careful. Understand your patient with COVID-19. An 80-year-old with COVID-19 with an ejection fraction of 35% and a borderline renal function will handle sedation differently compared to a 25-year-old with normal organ systems. And that's important to understand when these drugs are, are going to be removed or washed out from the system. And then is, um, you know, paralysis uh, and sedation in COVID-19 patients. Often done, uh, especially patients who end up going on ECMO and such, and um, often not done very appropriately. Next slide, please. The first thing is how do we report sedation? If we go back about two decades and we look at ARDS trials in general, Sedation practices have often been underreported or not adequately reported. If you go down the list over here that you can see on your screen, last 20 years or so, starting from ARDSnet down to Rose, sedation practices on the far right column over there have been sort of scantily reported. Some trials have done a better job than others, uh, specifically the Oscillate trial, New England Journal 2013, I feel they did a really good job talking about median sedation duration and median daily dose of sedatives and opioids. And, and, and uh, recently, the ROSE trial has done a decent job as well. But overall, sedation, again, is an often forgotten part, even when we do our large randomized prospective trials that have looked at ARDS, where patients with ARDS will stay on sedation for a long, long, long time. So something to think about for all of those who are interested in this space and going to make the next uh, set of ARDS trials. Next slide, please. Here is a prime example. So um, when I looked around for literature in terms of what has been reported with sedation in COVID-19 patients, um, I came up with this fairly small study uh, about 29 patients or so, uh, CAP and colleagues, uh, published just recently in anesthesia and analgesia. And they found that um, there was significantly more sedation and at least three times the median dose of opioids compared to other ARDS trials and significantly more in patients who were paralyzed in their small population of 29 patients that they talked about. And, and again, um, I'm sorry, this, uh, this is a, uh, not a very clear slide, but the, in, in, the, in the dark squares here are benzodiazepines, the light circles are opiates in dose equivalents in milligrams per day. And this is significantly more, at least to my eyes, as I read off these numbers, I know that using opiates to the tune of, say, 1,000 milligrams a day is way more than an average patient would need. And in general, if you look at the bottom here, a lot of these patients have not just been on opiates, they've been combination drugs, they've been benzos and opiates all the way through their intubation time in the ICU. Again, something to think, think about. Why are we giving our COVID-19 patients these high doses of opiates and benzodiazepines? The question is, are they really metabolizing these drugs faster? Do they really chew up these drugs faster? Or is it a combination of, yes, some of these patients are younger. They have you know, healthy organ systems. Um, they may be tolerant because of other reasons. They have an intense inflammatory um, cascade of sorts going on in them. Their volume of distribution may be more, especially with the ECMO patients. But again, not all of our COVID-19 patients are young, have high volumes of distribution, and are intensely inflamed. However, we do tend to dump on a lot of sedation onto our COVID-19 patients all the time. Next slide, please. So um, wide variation in sedation practices, no real standardization across ICUs. Plus, I often ask myself, is COVID-19 pneumonia really a painful condition? Are we trying to treat pain with opioids. 
We know that opioids and heavy sedation has poor long-term cognitive outcomes, and I, my colleagues are going to talk about this as well. In general, they have poor long-term um, cognition outcomes in a non-COVID critically ill patient. So why are we challenging the COVID-19 brain with it? And then this is slightly controversial. I will say this. Patients with COVID-19 are usually kept in these closed ICU rooms. Um, you've got to wear your paper. You've got to wear your N95. You've got to don and doff. Go, come in, go out. I will openly admit that we have to be honest and say we don't titrate their sedation and we don't go in and adjust their ventilation as much as we would do for a non-COVID patient. So the general tendency is to uh, sort of leave them on cruise control for as long as possible, which is um, sort of a, you know, a part of uh, our failure as intensive care team and part of the fear of being in and out with these patients for too long uh, of a time. Also the fear of self-extubation. I personally had a young patient with COVID-19 early on in, in March and April who self-extubated. And, and as you can well understand, uh, it, it is then a problem, not just for the patient who's hypoxic, but also for all the people who've also got to suddenly go, go into their papers and try and rescue this situation in a situation where you know that there's a lot of virus aerosolization. So fear of self-extubation also weighs into all of this that we're doing. And then finally, for appropriate sedation, are we using um, any monitoring targets? Are we using process EEG? Are we using BIS? Or are we just giving them sedation to take away their respiratory drive? Those are some things that we have to consider. Next slide. So as far as the American Society of Anesthesiologists is concerned, um, I'm the vice chair of the Committee on Critical Care Medicine. And again, again, through this pandemic, we had repeated requests from the FDA um, and the government uh, when we reached a critical drug shortage. As you all are aware, IV opioids were at a critical shortage in this country at some stage. So um, our committee came up with a um, guideline document. Um, this hyperlink should open that, but I actually have the guideline document that I'm going to just go over with, with all of you. The guideline document essentially highlights some basic practices and also gives some ideas with alternatives. The one thing I've highlighted in red here is inhalational anesthetics as an alternative to traditional sedation in the ICU. This question was posed to us um, by the government and the FDA. Should we allow that when we were down to nothing with IV opioids? And uh, we do feel that at this point in time, uh, I, I, inhalational anesthetics could be used if you put your patient on an operating room ventilator, which has the capability to handle uh, inhalational anesthesia, but you should have adequate scavenging. Um, there is obviously the danger of excessive inhalational anesthetic consumption and, and build up and also moisture damage to the, to the circuit and the machine itself. Plus there would be a need for people who are used to handling inhalational anesthetics on a daily basis, um, some either anesthesia providers or anesthesiologists to handle that all the time. In Europe, inhalational anesthetics actually have been used as um, uh, you know, um, sedative agents in the ICU but in the United States, there is limited to no capability on ICU ventilators to use inhalational anesthetics as sedatives. So right now, not really recommended. Next slide, please. So what are some uh, proposed plans? Uh, initial go-to agent for sedation would be propofol. All of us are very familiar with it. Start high, start with more than 50 mics per kilo per minute. Allow the propofol to build up and give your, patient a, give your patient an adjunct, which would be a fentanyl or dilaudid, or some folks would consider PO opioids as well, especially when there was a potential shortage situation with fentanyl or, or dilaudid. Um, I personally prefer PRN opioids to IV continuous opioids, especially because the context sensitivity half of things like fentanyl 
and all audit and and for that matter even versed is it really prolongs the removal time of these drugs when they are used in an infusion form so start with propofol and preferably an an opioid as a prn and then back down on your propofol when you get to that plane of sedation next slide please other alternatives are seroquel can be added as as a po drug olanzapine some folks have tried that haloperidol in the very agitated patient i would not recommend it for normal sedation practice and we all know the qtc should be uh, monitored with all of these agents for long qtc and uh, initially we were using uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin so obviously the qtcs were needed to be monitored closely next slide The problem with COVID-19 patients is uh, ventilator asynchrony. So when you reach a point there with propofol and basic opioid PRNs or opioid infusion and scheduled antipsychotics, you're still not able to achieve ventilator synchrony. We did recommend, as a committee, the use of phenobarbital. Personally, I have not used phenobarbital. I I feel that um, it is uh, possibly. a drug that uh, that would really take away uh, not just respiratory drive but also you know silence the eeg um and and again you've got to be very very confident when you're using something like phenobarbital because of its toxic effects as well um presidex is something that i'm personally more comfortable with so i would use presidex as an additional agent at that point uh, point 0.2 to 1.2 micrograms per kilo per hour and then consider a- adding po clonidine or a clonidine patch onto your patient at that point next slide and then finally if nothing works if all of this is also not working then ketamine infusions are uh, can be tried uh, anywhere between 0.1 to 2 mg per kilo per hour um, understand that eeg uh, is not Uh, is affected by ketamine so eeg will not be accurate when you're using ketamine again you can go back on to a versed or um or a lorazepam infusion um again um i personally would say uh, benzodiazepine infusions um have a lot of long term neurocognitive problems and patients waking up really confused so be very careful when you have to get to this point finally uh what do you do with neuromuscular blocking agents uh, there comes a point where everyone feels like paralyzing their patients on the ventilator always try uh, intermittent boluses if you can do it if you can actually monitor a train of four and do some sort of quantitative train of four monitoring to see if your patient it needs to be uh, deeply paralyzed or not do that versus again just putting a preparation on a continuous cisatracurium infusion or a rocuronium infusion because again long term problems myopathy weakness and patients uh, uh, are uh, rehabilitation issues then creep in with long term neuromuscular blocking agents next slide and and finally i'm going to uh, talk a little bit about ecmo not a lot of covid patients have gone on ecmo but having said that um, when i looked at the elso website last time there was upwards of 1500 patients who had been on ecmo ecmo is a special patient population you know you put a patient on ecmo he or she is going to be on ecmo maybe upwards of a week or a median about 2 weeks large volumes of distribution i have seen anywhere between 100 to 200 mg an hour of fentanyl going in large volumes of propofol going in versed going in presidex going in in combination and still your patient's not totally knocked out uh plus um plus par- paralysis as well now the issue is it's important to understand that patients on ecmo are if anything going to receive going to have really large volumes of distribution so yes they will need more but it's more important especially in these patients to monitor their depth of anesthesia or depth of sedation with either process eeg or a bis monitor if you have that understanding the limitations of that monitoring understanding the artifactual nature as well but have some sort of objective guidance when you put these patients on sedation and i think i have said enough i'm going to stop here 
I think I've created enough controversy for the rest of my uh, panelists to take this over and, um, and, and run with this. And I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of questions at the end. Yeah, thanks, Ashish. We appreciate that. Hang in there. Some of this discussion will involve you uh, as we go along. Um, Neha, do you think that the sedation is, is one of the key contributors to the neurologic problems we see in COVID patients, or is it, is it uh, just exacerbating what's already present? I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. And um, more recently in literature, so there was, there was this hypothesis that there might be some neuroinvasive potential of the virus. Uh, particularly during that early viremic phase, but a lot of our patients are coming in in that early viremic phase. So whether their viral loads are low such that they were not detected in CSF in the French study, that was the first one uh, published in NJM, uh, about 58 patients or so, they had CSF samples on seven patients, all patients were encephalopathic, but CSF was negative. Um, or um, this anosmia that patients are developing, is it because of neuroinvasion or retrograde uh, neurological, uh, you know, just following the track from an intranasal route or is it a hematogenous spread? Um, it's, it's, it's still a little bit uncertain, although I think based on three recent studies. So one of them is, uh, is a Virchopsy study, it essentially did like an MRI within 24 hours was published in neurology. And what they found the, on, on the MRIs that these patients, so it's a small, small study, very rigorously conducted. And of those 19 patients, they did find that patients had this hypoperfusion of their bifrontal lobes. Now they don't specify uh, what perfusion um, study they, they used, uh, but I'm guessing it was most likely in a, in a hybrid scanner, uh, but uh, they found hypoperfusion, which, I mean, if we think about the pathophysiology of delirium from sepsis-associated encephalopathy, there's, there's all this breakdown in the blood-brain barrier, there's microglial activation, there's uh, some role of astrocytes as well, there's neuronal death. So from a, from a biological perspective, yes, COVID-19 patients are going to be at a higher risk of developing, uh, developing delirium. And then add to it all the other problems, some of which Ashish highlighted, were not able to necessarily titrate their sedation uh, by using objective monitoring. They're also going to have a lot of other non- um, non-neurologic systemic uh, complications, right, from, yes, ARDS and sepsis and sh uh, different kinds of shock um, and uh, AKI and some liver injury as well. So all of those compounded and then add to it the cumulative burden of these sedative metabolites that are just going to linger on. Uh, it's just going to make it so much harder. So I think it's a combination of all of these different things and then as if, as if we didn't have um, things hard enough, we had this whole uh, layer of isolation where families were not allowed to visit. And we know from, from this amazing body of literature that, uh, in the pre-COVID era that the presence of families at the bedside, so in the ABCDEF bundle, uh, the presence of families at the bedside is a huge uh, factor in preventing some of these uh, consequences. So. I think we, we were pretty much up against um, you know, being between a rock and a hard place. Earlier in the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of safety concerns. We just didn't know what we were dealing with. I think from that survival mode, we now have over 35,000 PubMed index publications. So we know so much more. I'm not saying these are all like, uh, you know, incredibly rigorous uh, trials, but we've learned so much. So there's really no excuse to then say, let's go on autopilot. Um, and to Ashish's point about uh, safety concerns, we had patients uh, self-extubate. And at a time when you know, our, our protocols for how we're going to intubate these patients are changing every single day. At one point in time, we had only attendings are going to intubate. So yes, I, yeah, one of my uh, colleagues who was on, and I'm, I'm ready to pick up sign out, and he's in there intubating. And it wasn't, it wasn't a, it was a difficult thing to watch because this was early, early in the pandemic. And we didn't know how, how bad this could get. We were lucky that all of our rooms were negative pressure. All our ICU rooms uh, were negative pressure rooms. So yes, that uh, aerosolization of the virus was not as much of a concern. But I think now we don't really have an excuse. We've got mm -hmm. to fine tune um, and adapt that uh, ABCDEF bundle, also adapt 
all those good evidence-based practices from the last two decades to how we're providing care for COVID-19 patients. Because, and I keep saying this uh, again and again, and I'm hoping this is going to come true. There's not going to be any second wave. We're still pretty much part of the first wave. And we're always going to have, you know, some, some COVID-19 patients who are going to come through our unit. And if it's not COVID-19, it's going to be something else. So let's just, let's just be prepared. Mm-hmm. Let me, uh, oh, while we're, sort of on this topic, Carla, have you been able to notice in, in follow-up care that type or duration of sedation makes a big difference in what you see in your clinic? It, so, you know, our, our experience with COVID-19 patients specifically is still pretty limited in terms of follow-up. But um, as Neha alluded to, we know a lot about how to handle sedation and critical illness in general in sepsis, in ARDS, and, you know, COVID-19 is a viral sepsis for the patients that we're taking care of in, in the ICU. So we're certainly seeing many of the same um, problems that we saw pre-COVID in terms of cognitive impairments, um, post-traumatic stress symptoms, anxiety, uh, depression, um, and that is the baseline onto which we are layering general pandemic horror. And so there's sort of a general post-traumatic stress uh, going on in the, in the whole world, which is not post because we're still in it. So traumatic stress. Um, and then as uh, Ashish alluded to, so drug shortages have increased the use of things like benzodiazepines, which we know will, um, you know, once you get a certain equivalent of, uh, benzodiazepines, the incidence of delirium is 100%, and delirium is a predictor, the strongest uh, predictor that we know about for post-critical illness cognitive impairment. So some of the patients that we've had come back um, have, in many cases, especially the ones who had extremely severe critical illness, who were on ECMO, had prolonged uh, mechanical ventilation, and we're still just starting to see these patients I think have a surprising good, surprisingly good recovery, but sleep disturbance, cognitive impairment, um, post-traumatic stress sy- symptoms are extremely common. I don't want to say universal, um, but they're extremely common in that critically ill population. Yeah. I may just chime in uh, to extend that. So in our post-ICU recovery clinic, so We've seen about 50 uh, COVID-19 ICU survivors, and some of these patients who were really, really sick, uh, severe ARDS and all the multi-system complications that you can think of are doing surprisingly well, particularly the younger patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, their trachs have been decannulated, their pegs are decannulated. So I think that's, that's heartening to see. However, um, Extending Carla's point, the burden of fatigue, and even, even if you're not able to quantify that cognitive impairment, it depends on the screening tool you're using. Patients are complaining of this not being able to think right or this COVID brain fog. And what does it even, what does it even mean uh, from a biological basis and from a pathophysiological basis? I think we're just beginning to hear about these, these long COVID haulers, if you will, uh, people who, who continue to have... Um, uh, this, these persistent cognitive uh, problems, so the PTSD, depression, anxiety, all of those things that we've, we've known of as post-intensive care syndrome, uh, of course, we, we know that these patients are going to be at risk of it based on everything that we knew pre-COVID. And like Carla said, you add everything else that happened with the pandemic. And then even after they discharge from the hospital, whether they go to a facility or whether they end up going to a long-term care facility or they're going home, their family members are also under a lot of stress. Then you have this added layer of social distancing or loss of their jobs. Um, people have been furloughed. So there's, there's a lot of other things that are also compounding this long road to recovery. And that's another reason why health systems should be paying more attention to what are we going to do to ramp up resources for providing this additional layer of support that our COVID-19 survivors are going to need, not in lieu of what we already have, but probably by way of numbers or by way of a multidisciplinary effort. Um, I think that's, that's going to be important. 
So Neha, you mentioned very nicely about the biological process that goes on with the COVID-19 and the cytokine release and immune mediated uh, reaction is like pretty well known, especially for COVID ARDS. Um, would that also affect, I mean, are there other neurological effects uh, related to these uh, COVID, uh, I'm sorry, uh, cytokine release? And uh, if there is, is it long-term and how would you manage um, manage something like that? Wow, that's, a, that's like multiple questions uh, rolled into one. So maybe we can pull up my infographic here. Um, so something that, uh, that is bound to happen when you have over 18 million cases, uh, reported cases of COVID-19, and you know about anywhere between 10 to 15% or so of these patients are going to develop uh, severe COVID-19 requiring, uh, and about severe to moderate COVID-19, and about four to 5% or so, depending upon which country you're looking at, are going to require uh, ICU level care. Um, there are going to be some bystander effects. So we are going to end up seeing neurological complications, which may or may not be completely associated pathophysiologically with COVID-19. However, based on the data that we have right now, multiple, and we were also one of the institutions that reported uh, this early case series of uh, emergent large vessel occlusion uh, of five pa patients who were relatively young, did not have any stroke risk factors. And now we know from multiple, multiple uh, centers, institutions have published their experience with stroke. And based on that, we know that stroke, yes, stroke is associated with COVID-19. Does COVID-19 cause stroke? So in terms of that causative effect, unless you have a really good control patient population, it's difficult to tease out that cause and effect. However, we know that COVID-associated coagulopathy, particularly on that hypercoagulable spectrum, yes, patients are going to develop either micro or macro thrombosis. So we know that. Uh, a recent study that looked at the... Um, uh, incidence of stroke in patients with influenza versus COVID-19 as uh, patients are coming coming through the ED. So in both groups, they had about uh, 1,400 and 1,900 COVID-19 patients. And they found that influenza patients, only about 0.2% or so patients had um, stroke. And then in COVID-19, they found uh, upwards of you know 3% or so patients, uh, sorry, 1.6% patients, so 30, 31 out of 1,900 or so patients had stroke. Having said that, in addition to acute ischemic stroke, so yes, all those patients with traditional risk factors, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, older age, we know that COVID-19 is going to be more severe in those patients potentially. So they're going to have a higher burden of COVID-19. Plus, you're going to also uh, watch diligently for acute ischemic stroke. In terms of the other spectrum, so encephalitis. So early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about, is there true sort of inflammation, this cytokine release storm that's affecting all the different organs of the body? Is it also affecting the brain? So again, uh, looking at imaging studies. So there was one study that, uh, you know, one case report initially reported this acute hemorrhagic um, uh, encephalitis. Um, um, you know, encephalitis uh, from Henry Ford. And since then, we've had a few imaging studies that have spoken about encephalitis or encephalopathy. We've had a few patients as well. Um, but whether it's true, uh, truly different as compared to other post-viral encephalitis, it's it's difficult to tease that out. In the autopsy study um, uh, that was published in NEJM, um, they specifically had, uh, they found some low viremia in uh, specific regions of the brain. Also found some leptomeningeal, uh, some leptomeningeal uh, involvement as well, but very low as, not, not to the tune that you would have expected. Vasculitis wasn't seen as much as we had hypothesized that maybe there's vasculitis, but endo endotheliopathy, just, just that endotheliopathy that's causing a uh, prothrombotic state in other parts of the body, whether it's uh, causing AKI or uh, PE or uh, microthrombosis in the pulmonary circulation, it's similarly affecting, affecting the brain as well. And then in the peripheral nervous system, some cases of Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome or acute inflammatory demyelinating uh, polyradicular neuropathy has been reported. But again, is it is it is it similar to what we saw with Zika? We're not seeing as many cases. These are just these are uh, 
few and, and far between out of millions of cases of COVID-19. And myositis, I mean, we've seen elevated CK levels, but that's kind of nonspecific as well. Some of that fatigue that patients are uh, complaining about, it's not necessarily associated with a lot of muscle pain, et cetera. So yeah. I think the entire spectrum, if you will, we all, we've also seen encephalomyelitis where we've seen involvement of the spinal cord, but these are, these are some uh, case reports. And are they uh, like chronic, uh, is, is it chronic neuroinflammation? I mean, is it expected to be acute or subacute or do we expect, it, expect to see patients even in um, like post-COVID syndrome? There's a really cool study conducted in uh, Sweden looking at some biomarkers and they specifically looked at, they prospectively enrolled, uh, I think about 40, 47 or so patients and what they found, and they had mild, moderate, severe COVID-19 patients, and they uh, repeatedly sampled uh, two biomarkers, uh, GFAP, which essentially is a marker of astrocytic involvement, and also neurofilament, uh, so uh, NFL. Uh, they use these two because there's all this data from cardiac arrest and there's, there's data from other, other pre-COVID-19 disease processes as well. So they, they looked at these markers and they found that patients with moderate to severe COVID-19 have elevated levels, have higher levels of GFAP and NFL as compared to patients with mild disease. Although NFL levels will uh, drop eventually at the time of follow-up, GFAP levels keep going up. So what does that mean? That potentially means that there's an initial, potential initial viral or viremic response that's that's attacking the astrocytes, that's causing that rise in GFAP. And then eventually you're seeing this high level because patients have hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or some anoxic damage, which has also been reported on um, autopsy studies. And uh, some features, these micro hemorrhages that are described on, uh, on some imaging studies, uh, recent imaging study from NYU, um, it essentially speaks to some of these these problems and whether the effect of these uh, these some of them are non-specific findings because of the consequences of COVID-19 whether they're going to have any long-term uh, effects on uh, neurological prognosis um, if you take unless a patient develops another a secondary neurological complication like stroke or uh, status epilepticus or Guillain-Barre, uh, uh, et cetera, if you, uh, if you have no other secondary neurological uh, complication, then does it really affect um, prognostication? I think we, we really need to study this rigorously. And one such uh, international consortium uh, involving multiple countries that we're also uh, participating in uh, is was coordinated by the society of uh, the neurocritical care society it's a global consortia for looking at uh, specifically these these uh, neurological complications and long-term outcomes mm -hmm. ashish i have a question for you here that uh, carla sparked a few minutes ago when she mentioned sleep in the icu um, how do we tell sleep from over sedation and how do you monitor for sleep and be sure that your patients get good sleep in the ICU? I, was, I had a silent smile as you were formating that question. I was like, is there something called sleep in the ICU? <laughs> um, probably not. Uh, and I wish there was something called good sleep in the ICU. Uh, and, and you know that the world over, we've struggled to find that sweet spot for our patients, uh -huh. right? What is adequate sleep? Are they mostly awake and, and struggling with hyperactive delirium or they're totally, you know, sedated, deep sedated, paralyzed. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say, and I was, I've been listening to all of this conversation and I will say that someday when this pandemic is behind us and I don't know when that day will be, but if we ever go back and look at all of our patients with COVID-19 and we compare them to propensity-matched controls that did not have COVID-19 but had similar viral pneumonia. And we look at the amount of sedation we have given our patients with COVID-19 and the amount of sedation we have given our patients with normal viral pneumonias, we will see a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I, I, despite whatever we may say about these patients needing more sedation, I still feel that there is no way we can justify that, that difference. And I see it on a daily basis. I will say, to answer your question, mm -hmm. on a regular 
patient who's intubated with ARDS or even viral pneumonia, um, I normally just run some propofol as sedation. And that is, that is me. I am very militant with <coughs> not using opioids and um, benzodiazepines in the ICU. Um, some folks might not be, but I am. And I feel that propofol sedation is good enough if titrated appropriately. And if you're genuinely going to give your patient that genuine sedation vacation every day, where you can actually put the patient off sedation, let them wake up um, and be by their bedside and you know be, be in a state where they're trying to communicate with you. Now that takes a lot of resources. And I think part of the problem has been that the pandemic has stretched us thin with not just physical resources, I think the, the mental burden of the pandemic on healthcare workers is also made, it's, 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 it is significant, right? So to expect everyone to be by a COVID-19 patient who's ventilated, give them a sedation vacation every day and to, to, uh, to, to, to actually um, give them an appropriate sedation vacation, I don't think we're actually getting there. We can probably do a better job, but we're also stretched uh, thin. Yeah. Carla, I believe you have something to say. Yes, I, I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. I think if we took however mil many billion dollars we spent on <laughs> car companies to make ventilators and, you know, expensive medications and uh, things that turned out to be really zero helpful and potentially harmful, and we put all those resources into what we know good critical care is, we would be much better off and our patients would be much better off. Likewise, we have a lot to learn about the COVID's direct effects on the brain, but let's just leave the COVID out of it, okay? And say, I take you away from your family, I put you on a ventilator, I make you hypoxic, I make your blood clotty, um, I give you steroids, I don't let you sleep, and, um, and you get a bunch of diazepines, benzodiazepines, your brain's gonna be pretty screwed up from that and you don't need to have COVID um, on top of it to, to have problems post-ICU. Uh, post so uh, we, could, we could be doing a lot better in the ICU, and there are a lot of things that we know how to do in terms of the, the ABCDF bundle, as Neha uh, uh, alluded to. And we need to do a better job of, of following up patients as well. We have basically no infrastructure for that. And I saw a scary um, number yesterday. There was a public health um, economist in New York who said that if 20% of the U.S. population um, gets COVID, the one-year post-hospital costs will be upwards of $50 billion. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've spent more than $50 billion trying to find a cure for COVID that is not going to materialize. Right. If we redirected those resources, we'd be in good shape. Yeah. A couple of comments, though, and I, I think I might differ a little bit from my co-panelists here. Uh, I do think that these patients require a little bit more sedation as compared to the non-COVID-19 patients. And there was, um, there are some papers that, that do hypothesize whether there is direct uh, involvement of the medulla or the cardiorespiratory centers. And... Uh, one of the autopsy studies uh, found low levels of viremia in the medulla, uh, medullary sections. Uh, whether it's it's truly, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that that made these patients so uh, tachypnic, because some of these patients were breathing really, really fast. So, uh, and you you did have a lot of ventilator dyssynchrony and entrainment, and 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 it was. I'm not going to say that it, it was easier taking care of these patients as compared to the non-COVID-19 ARDS patients. Uh, it was probably harder. Uh, aside from all the logistic issues, I think there is something biologically as well that may have made it harder. And uh, Ashish alluded to this uh, in terms of, um, you know, whether, whether patients were just metabolizing medications faster because some of them were younger. Uh, that is possible. Their brains are... But you would, you would actually expect that if someone's completely healthy, has never been in an ICU and is not on any other substances uh, outside of, uh, of a prescription setting, um, as well as prescription setting, it should be, they, they should not require those high doses. But we did, we did see that. However, I completely agree that rather than flying blind, we need more monitoring. And when we say we need more monitoring, uh, 
there are challenges in providing that kind of neuromonitoring as well, whether it's EEG. So there were a lot of concerns about the time that a tech will spend in hooking a patient up. It's going to take, you know, anywhere between uh, 35 to 45 minutes to to connect the patient to EEG or um, or using other other ways of monitoring uh, the depth of sedation. Uh, BIS monitoring, I don't have as much. Uh, I, I should say I have I've not used BIS monitoring. If I'm going to use something, I end up using EEG. And here I was I was struggling because I, I didn't know whether I could uh, connect a patient to uh, to EEG or not. And then compounded by the fact that uh, we know from sepsis seps and septic shock patients about 20%, uh, d- depending on the study you see, about 20 to 30% of these patients are going to have non-convulsive seizures. And you're only going to be able to diagnose it by way of electrographic uh, monitoring. So there is a potential, there is a potential solution uh, technologically. There's a rapid EEG system. It's a headband that can go. So we try to use, use that uh, in some of our patients. But Again, I, I, I just think we need to do better in terms of the monitoring piece as well. And maybe sedation is a little bit harder in these patients as compared to our non-COVID-19 patients. Carla, let me, um, um, let me turn just for a minute because I want to be sure we get, get to some of your particular area of expertise here. Who, who do you think, once these people make it out of the ICU and once they make it home, who needs to be involved in their post-ICU care? Is it pulmonary? Is it is it neurology? Who who do you think should be there? I I think so. In the early post uh, discharge period, there's certainly a, there's no right or wrong way to go about this. They clearly need follow up. Um, the default system in our country is to have the primary care physician do the follow up. Um, that is in many cases not ideal, um, especially in the huge proportion of our patients who have no pulmonary, who have no primary care provider. Um, so that doesn't work out for a, a number of patients. We also are not very good at communicating with the primary care physician about what happened in the ICU. And, um, you know, and if, if, you have a big primary care practice, you might only see a handful of people a year who've been in the ICU. So the presence of uh, an intensivist of some sort in the immediate post-discharge period, I think is extremely helpful um, to screen for the kinds of problems that um, are quite commonly um, resulting not only from the the illness that the patient had with the care that we provided. So if you were on a ventilator and you might have airway issues, those will be very subtle for somebody who's not um, an intensivist to pick up. Um, We've seen a lot of patients who leave the hospital with hardware that they don't know about, like an IVC filter that was supposed to be removed. That's gonna be completely invisible uh, to somebody who was not involved in their ICU care and didn't get a good discharge summary. And, and, and often those don't get removed and become a nidus for clots. Um, we are also seeing patients who weren't necessarily in the ICU, um, and in some cases weren't even in the hospital for their COVID coming back with uh, vascular problems, blood clots, and things like that. So that we need a high index of suspicion for those sorts of things. Um, and I think um, there are, many of the post-ICU clinics that exist in the U.S., which are not many, but the ones that do exist are often multidisciplinary for this purpose. You, we do feel a little bit under-equipped as perhaps pulmonologists or intensivists, or um, of course, intensivists come from a, a variety of different uh, walks of life, to handle the really broad problems that some of these patients may have. For example, I'm not a psychologist, and I um, am not skilled in doing extensive cognitive testing, but I have a neuropsychologist who works with me in clinic, Mm -hmm. and I've certainly learned a lot by seeing these patients um, come back, and um, especially previously high-functioning patients might come in, and you'll have a delightful conversation with them for 10 minutes as a pulmonologist, (laughs) and then the neuropsychologist goes in there and asks them what year it is, and all hell breaks loose. Um, So, much like we know about delirium in the ICU, if you are not using a formal tool to look for delirium, you are missing a lot of, especially hypoactive delirium. Likewise, if you are not screening for cognitive dysfunction in post-ICU patients, you are missing cognitive dysfunction to the great detriment of the patient. So um, many, especially in this very pressured economic situation, 
if patients can go back to work, they're going to want to go back to work. And if they're cognitively impaired, not to mention weak and uh, financially strapped and all the things that we see after the ICU, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to do that successfully. And that's where we think we can uh, we can uh, help and weigh in. And what we do at Vanderbilt is we, and I think a lot of people do, is something of a screen and refer model. So we we are able to solve a lot of problems ourselves, especially you know med- medication reconciliation errors, um, vaccination, smoking cessation, a lot of preventative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody needs something more in depth, like ongoing mental health counseling, we try to hook them up with community resources to do that. We're not trying to take over. Uh, the job of a community primary care physician or, or mental health counselor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so who exactly would be on your team then? So you mentioned a psychologist for the neurocognitive assessment um, and an intensivist. Who else do you put in there? We have a clinical pharmacist who, um, because she's very energetic and motivated, is also our ICU pharmacist. So there's a lot of nice continuity there. We have nurse practitioners who um, are practically single-handedly running our COVID unit um, who come down and, and, and help in the clinic. Uh, we do some rest for those patients who can come in in person. We do um, spirometry to screen for airway disorders and six-minute walk testing to um, sort of gauge where they are in their um, deconditioning, critical illness, myopathy uh, phase. And that's proven very beneficial. Um, we actually started just doing it for intellectual curiosity, but we found that uh, patients find it very motivating to have some objective data um, against which to measure their their improvement or lack thereof. So if there's, you know, if I, everybody's weak, so everybody needs more rehab. Um, but if we just say you need to have more rehab, we don't get a lot of response to that. If we say your six minute walk distance is 47% predicted and the only treatment is more rehab, yeah. different story. Sure. So um, uh, there are other clinics who also have physical therapists and occupational therapists in their uh, clinics, which is great. We have not been able to consistently fund one, but if anybody wants to give me one for Christmas, I'll take it. <laughs> um, the uh, position of a social worker or, or case manager is very, very important. Uh, these patients need a lot of uh, care coordination as they sort of move through the arc of recovery. And a social worker, especially a, a licensed clinical social worker can also do mental health counseling can screen for cognitive issues. So um, I usually tell people to, to take the resources that they have at hand and, and try to leverage those to get the services that are needed for those patients. Pretty much the advice that you gave us, uh, that's essentially what we did. And we added, we added a spiritual care provider as well. And we have pharmacy, uh, we have advanced practice providers, of course, an intensivist, a pharmacist. Physiatry is available on as needed basis. But I should say a lot of us are just volunteering our time to do this because we believe that we cannot abandon our patients after they leave the, leave the ICU. There's got to be some continuity of care. And like Carla was saying, if a community uh, mental health provider or a PCP doesn't get a good discharge summary, for a patient who doesn't remember more than uh, 50, 60% of their ICU hospitalization. And in some situations, they're not going to remember anything at all. If you don't have a good story to fill that gap, uh, it makes it so much harder for patients and families to unpack and process everything that they've been through. So those consequences then get magnified because they're going to suffer from more PTSD in an attempt to try to form some, some memories which are, uh, which are just not there. So Carla. Good, go ahead. <laughs> Um, how often do you see like post-COVID psychosis and is there any relationship with uh, the steroids, whether we use the steroids like uh, in uh, uh, during their hospitalization, whether it gets continued or not, but uh, what is the association and also like how common do you see uh, the post-COVID uh, psychosis? So um, it's a little bit of a, of a selection uh, problem. So if you're on a ventilator, we can see everybody who's on a ventilator because they're in an ICU. We are not consistently following up every patient who has had COVID. We're starting to see, I'm personally starting to see a lot more uh, patients who weren't necessarily in the ICU, but are getting referred to our clinic because they um, were either in the hospital or an outpatient with COVID and have, um, especially uh, cognitive and affective uh, issues are what get them, um, 
referred. So um, we have had one patient who was um, pretty psychotic, but she had pre-existing psychiatric disease. So, you know, pre-existing psychopathology is a risk factor for, we know, PTSD at least. Um, and so how that's going to play out in, in COVID is not clear. It certainly isn't helping. Um, but it, it's very difficult to capture the full range of, of outpatients. So especially if you're, um, if you're uninsured in the U.S., it's really difficult to access care even under the best of circumstances. And now outpatient um, care is limited because of, of COVID. So floridly psychotic, um, not that many. Um, but of course, it's possible that they're ending up somewhere other than in our clinic. Um, cognitively impaired, however, is that's quite common. Um, even pre-COVID, probably 60, 65% of the patients we were seeing in our clinic who have a lot of similar exposures. So you, you, you're eligible if you're on a ventilator or if you were delirious or you had shock in the ICU. Um, so probably 65% of those have meaningful cognitive impairment. Um, we also see a lot of anxiety in the early post-discharge period that if left unchecked or unaddressed or untreated may evolve into true post-traumatic uh, stress. So that's something that we've seen in our early post-hospital period that's a little different from the um, the controlled research literature, which tends to look at outcomes a little bit further away from, uh, from the hospitalization. Cool. And also, what are some of the toolkits that you have uh, in post-COVID, like neurological assessments uh, in your clinic? We're not doing anything specifically different for COVID than we do for other um, critical illnesses, but typical tools that we use to screen for cognitive impairment. We actually often uh, will start with just an informal interview and then decide which tools to use from that. So, you know, if you don't know who the president is or the year, then, you know, doing a MOCA is probably overkill, but Montreal Cognitive Assessment is, a, is an easy to use tool. You can also uh, do it over the telephone. There's a MOCA blind uh, version, so it's great for telehealth. Uh, we'll give you a lot of information. Um, Executive function is an area that is often impacted by um, critical illness, and that really affects people when they're trying to go back to work, for example, or get back to their uh, usual lives. So um, we do assess that with the TRAILS A and B tests, um, which is uh, basically a test where you, you have a set of letters and a set of numbers, and you have to go A, 1, B, 2. I'm not going to go too far because it is pretty hard, actually. Um, you know, clock drawing tests, things like that, executive function, very key to people living a normal life and is often impacted by, by critical illness. Um, there, there are quite a few um, post-traumatic uh, stress screens that you can use. The IES-6 is only six items and it's been validated for phone use now. Um, the HADS hospital anxiety and depression scores and quite widespread use for screening for anxiety and depression, but related to a hospital stay. But there are others, um, other tools. So some, there are pros and cons for this. And uh, Neha and I and others who have post-ICU clinics are working on putting together um, a toolkit uh, paper that we will lay out all the tools that are, that are in use and their pros and cons. Fantastic. We guys, we are at the top of the hour. I want to give every panelist one more chance. Ashish, 15 seconds for the most important thing. <laughs> 15 <laughs> seconds. Um, so stay away from opioids and benzodiazepines. Please follow up these patients. And I will say very quickly, um, these patients are now starting to come back for surgical procedures. And some of my colleagues in New York have come back with interesting reports of hyperemic, swollen airways, difficult to keep their sats appropriate. There needs to be follow-up. Don't abandon these patients. Absolutely. Thank you. Neha, 15 seconds. What's the most important? I think everything that we have learned in the pre-COVID era, all the great evidence-based medicine, whether it's for critical care, for the management of neurological uh, complications, for neurocritical care, I think it's very important to stick to the basics. Uh, keeping in mind that you're going to need to have a high clinical suspicion, perform your neurological assessments, do that sedation break as much as possible. If nothing, if your patient is sedated, paralyzed, you have nothing else, at least check their pupils. And uh, judiciously use all these other different uh, non-invasive 
neuromonitoring strategies, right, from EEG to imaging uh, to uh, CSF analysis, provided your hospital has validated a SARS-CoV-2 PCR and CSF. And please follow up these patients. I think that's super important. And every, I think every health system, it's imperative that people start putting in resources towards longitudinal follow-up. This shouldn't be uh, just out of the goodness of our hearts. This is something our patients and families need. Absolutely. Carla, you're yes. to finish up. Follow-up. And <laughs> not just to help patients, but to help ourselves. We need to figure out how to do our job better. We need to learn about the long-term outcomes of COVID. And if you see these patients after they leave the hospital, you will learn a ton. And if uh, Abby wants to throw up the top 10 uh, DISPO items uh, slide that we have there, these are the things that anybody can do even before they leave the hospital to ensure a good follow-up. That's fantastic. Um, unfortunately, I've lost everybody here very quickly. Looking for, is it on the screen? Yes, it is. Perfect. So you can, if you're watching this discontinuously, i.e. later, you can just stop your video right here and look through these. I want to say thank you very much. This has been an enthralling hour. I feel like we could do another hour on this nonstop. And maybe we'll just have you all back in a couple of months and we'll do this. We'll pick up where we left off and finish up. There's so much more to discuss. Um, Neha, thank you. Carla, thank you. Ashish, thank you. And Deepa, thank you for helping to host this. Again, I'm Steve Simpson. Before we leave, I want to say thank you so much to Dom and Abby, our technical and learning help for this. We couldn't do it without them. And uh, we will see you again next time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.